Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles in the little racks underneath the chairs, uh, and so you can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible outside of this place, don't have access to one, man, we'd love for you to take that one home. We value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe that it's the primary means by which God uses to make Himself known to His creation. We also believe that it's effectual and does what God intends for it to do, and so the, the pastor in the room gets to look you in the eye and just say, hey, listen, you start reading your Bible, God's going to use it for some, some, some stuff. It's a tool in His hand. He's pretty handy with, with the tools that he has. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, please take that one home. It's, it's advantageous for us. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. We are now in the second week of a series uh, that we started last week on the book of Ephesians. And we are just absolutely flying through it, right? Last week we looked at chapter 1, verse 1. And that was it. We got through one verse of Ephesians. I did the math. There are 155 verses in Ephesians, which means if we kept that pace, it would take us about three years. But that's not counting all the other times we have other people preach and all the times that we need to you know, put stuff on hold for like major holidays like Christmas and other stuff because we got something special going on. So really, it's like four to five years. Excited? No? Maybe that'll soften the blow when I tell you it's going to take us five to six months to get through this, right? Maybe now nobody's going, man, this is taking forever. No, it's going to take us a while. We're going to be in uh, Ephesians probably till the end of the year, uh, probably come up right up to Christmas, maybe even extend beyond that, depending on if we try to do some other stuff in between. So uh, last week we kicked off a series in Ephesians, and uh, man, we're obviously going to move faster than we did last week, but we learned last week that Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And I think I got a map uh, from last week. There it is. So this is the Mediterranean and Turkey. You see Greece there and uh, a little pen that says the Ephesus ruins. Ephesus is an ancient city. Uh, it's no longer in existence all there today or ruins, and it's kind of a tourist trap. Right? And so uh, if you were to go to Ephesus today, you would see all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Am I crackling and stuff better better all right put it out of my pocket and put it on the clip that's how you fix that all right so Ephesus is nothing but ruins today uh, uh, there's some really cool stuff there one of these days I really wish I could go uh, but you know whatever uh, but nothing going on in Ephesus today but during its heyday it was a massive massive deal Ephesus at the time that Paul was writing this letter about 60 to 62 AD Ephesus was a big deal it was either the fourth or fifth biggest city in the world at the time it was quite cosmopolitan uh, and uh, it, it had a lot of economic and social clout on the Mediterranean there was a silversmith guild there that made uh, little silver statues of all the Greek and Roman gods and they shipped them all over the Mediterranean and so lots of cash was flowing through Ephesus but the big deal the big cash cow was this right here uh, the temple of Artemis and this is um, when the slide comes up there that's an artist's rendering we don't know exactly what it looks like because there's nothing left of it if you see a square on the ground where the foundation was uh, if you go to google maps or to apple maps which is my favorite and zoom in on the Ephesus ruins you can see the square on the ground 
There's nothing there anymore, all right? And so uh, that's what an artist decided to try to make to see what it might have looked like, but they're just guessing on that. The, the Temple of Artemis was uh, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so you're familiar with the Temple, uh, the Pyramids of Giza and the Lighthouse of Alexandria, uh, the Colossus of Rhodes, all that kind of stuff. The Temple of Artemis is on that list. And so if you were uh, a traveler in the first century, uh, the Temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus was a major thing that you wanted to make happen. All right? And so Paul is a guy who planted a church in that city, and uh, it went well for a while, right? We looked at Acts 19 last week, and Paul uh, was there for a couple of years, and the gospel was going forward so powerfully that all the people who made money off of the, the worship of Artemis, because, I mean, you can't have a touristy place without money flowing through, right? And you can't have a silversmith guild there uh, without money flowing through, but as soon as people started to worship Jesus instead of Artemis, all those, all that temple stuff started to take a hit, right? And all that silversmith stuff started to take a hit. And so in Acts 19, they tell us that a riot was started. Like the silversmith guys were like, uh-uh, we're not going to let this happen. And so they started a riot and get Paul running out of town, right? And so Paul writes this letter, uh, somewhere between seven and ten years later, from a prison cell, more or less, house arrest in the city of Rome. And he's going to write a letter as he walks the church of Ephesus faithfully through a culture where the gospel of Jesus is actually a threat to the way things are done and to what people value, right? That's what we said last week. So let's look at verse 1. Ephesians... Chapter 1, and I'll get there myself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we spent some time last week talking about how Paul uh, writes this letter with apostolic authority. Apostolic is just a big fancy way of saying that God is speaking through Paul, that Paul carries authority and, God, and Paul is speaking on behalf of God. That's what an apostle is. All right? And so one of, the, one of the beauties of an expository series is that we're always going to be building off of what we talked about the weeks before. All right? And one of the beauties of, the, of technology in the day and age we live is that we record all of our sermons. And so you, if you want to know more about what an apostle is and why Paul gets to write with authority and I don't, uh, you can go back and listen to last week. We got it on our website. We got it on SoundCloud. We have got it on iTunes, so whatever is your choice, go ahead. All right? But last week we said that the Apostle Paul wrote with authority, that he spoke on behalf of God, that this letter ought to be received because of that apostolic authority, ought to be received with obedience, right? That for the church at Ephesus, and because God has preserved it, therefore us, we ought to read this letter with a humble heart and a bent towards obedience. Paul, in verse 1, declares his authority. But what does he do in verse 2? It says, grace and peace to you. There's not just love and there's not just authority here, right? There's also love. There's, there's a sense that this letter is also being written and it's got a pastoral tone, a, a heart uh, for those who are reading it, right? So it's not just authority, it's also love. Do those two things go together? 
We live in a world where a lot of people would say the answer is no, right? We live in a world and a culture that seemingly increasingly so, a lot of people would say that love and authority can't exist in the same moment. And there are a lot of people, I, I have personal friendships with a lot of people who would look at a claim to bo- be both authoritative and loving would be an inconsistent claim. And so we have little phrases that we like to say, you know, if you love something, you got to let it go. We have lots of other cute phrases, but that's one of my favorite. If you love something, you got to let it go. We live in a world that often thinks that love requires zero restraint or criticism, right? So, now there are certain times when letting something go is actually a quite loving act, right? Don't we all kind of know people who need to stub their toe a little bit in order to get a sense of the world around them? Right? Like, and it's, it's sometimes incredibly loving to allow someone to fail. Sometimes. Um... But sometimes, though, is that always true? Like, is it always true that letting something go, someone go, is a loving action? I've got a two-year-old at the house, Will. Um, We just switched him over to a toddler bed from a crib, and so he no longer has the fence. (laughs) It's caused some fun things. He's got a bruise under his eye right now. He just showed up with that. After his nap the, uh, yesterday, actually, I think it was. What's happening? The dude has rolled out of bed. <laughs> Guess what happens when he rolls out of bed? It hurts, right? Listen, it is loving to allow him to continue to roll out of bed. We're not going to put the, the crib back together. He's going to stay in the toilet bed. The kid needs to learn how to be still when he's sleeping, right? Yeah. It is within the scope of our love to allow him to learn the hard way in this moment. But we also have a baby gate at the top of the stairs. If you've watched my son, when he runs at something, he ducks his head, he puts his arm back, and he just goes for it. He has no qualms about running off of the stage when we're in here. I promise you, he has no qualms about running off the top of the stairs either. If you love something, you got to let it go. (laughs) Perfect love cannot exist with restraint and authority. Really? Sometimes it is quite loving to allow someone to fail, but when you flesh that advice out into real-world circumstances, sometimes it's the dumbest advice you can follow, right? Yeah. Paul here... Paul here writes a letter to the saints in Ephesus, and it's most assuredly authoritative. But it's also most assuredly written in love and concern for them. Those two things aren't in conflict with each other. In fact, they fuel each other, right? His authority incites his love. And his love for the church at Ephesus causes him to write with authority, right? Yeah. Those aren't Those aren't in conflict with each other. They're actually serving each other. Paul writes a letter that is both authoritative and dripping with concern for them. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right, so super fun text for some people. For other people, it makes them quite nervous. There's some heady stuff in there, right? Words that uh, people sometimes have real strong opinions about. So, let's set some ground rules. If you're here, and you haven't decided yet whether or not you believe the Bible is true, I'm glad you're here. This is a safe place to work through those claims. But let me talk for a second to those who have. For those of us who have decided that the Bible is true and can be trusted, how do we approach it? Do we approach it in a a humble way, or do we approach it seeking to change it instead of ourselves? What I mean by that is this. If I have an idea about the way something works, and then I come to somewhere in the Bible and it, it explicitly says otherwise, who's the one that bends? I do, right? Now we say that out loud, but is that really the posture of our heart? Right? So if I come to something and I've got an idea about it, but the the scriptures explicitly or maybe just implicitly say something else, do I have the humility in me to be the one that backs down? To be the one that changes course? Would it actually be an arrogant position to come to the scriptures and say, I don't care what it says, this is what I think? I think think so, right? So let's just just read what it says. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, so a little time out. Is that good news or bad news? It's good news, right? Like no one's going, ah, that's terrible. I mean, I I know it's a dumb question, but we have to ask this because there's a reason Paul put it before verses four through six. All right? Paul just said that through Jesus, God is giving us what? Every spiritual blessing. So every good spiritual thing that God can give us is being fulfilled through who? All right, so we're at the very start of things. We're not talking about a capricious anything, are we? We're talking about a God who's doing all things with a bent towards love. With a bent towards blessing. With a bent towards doing good for those that are coming down the pipe right? So no matter what you think about the bigger words coming in verses 4 through 6, our core level attitude ought to be whatever God is doing, he's doing so in love, right? So let's look at verse 4. Or look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, comma, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So on the face of things, what's Paul saying? Seems to be saying that everyone that would be God's people 
Christians that God chose before the foundation of the world. Wrap it up, tie a little bow, full stop. He also said that, that all of those people are people that he would make holy and blameless before him. This is stuff that people we tend to have pretty strong opinions about, right? If you spend any time in church uh, at all, you, you know people tend to have sometimes very vocal uh, opinions about this kind of stuff, right? Now, all people who believe in a God of any type believe that God, that, that God is sovereign, that they're in control. Otherwise, it's not a God that they believe in. It's some kind of spiritual whatever, right? To believe in a God of any variety is to believe that that God has control over at least something, usually all things, right? Otherwise, it's this spiritualized karma, whatever. It, to believe in a God is to believe that God is in control, or otherwise, they're not God. Christians who believe the God of the Bible believe that God is in control. The place that we sometimes disagree is how much control does he exercise? How much control does he act on, in other words? Are Christians allowed to disagree on this stuff? Absolutely, they are. We've got opinions. I've got opinions. We believe that he is both eternal and also creator and sustainer of all things. We believe God is in control, but are we a bunch of puppets mindlessly doing whatever God has foreordained for us to do? Does it even matter? matters a little bit. But again, Christians disagree on how much it matters. People sometimes get really animated about this kind of stuff. Even to the point where we sometimes don't care what Paul actually says here. And we dump what he says and formulate our own opinions based on how we feel. But what did Paul actually say? even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did Paul say that we're mindless puppets? No. No, he didn't. He said that God chooses and predestines. And those aren't the same thing. So there's a lot of questions that arise from this kind of talk. Um, questions that sometimes we can't answer, but there's some questions that we can, right? So let's, let's ask three questions just real quick that'll set our hearts and our minds at ease, all right? Just number one, as creator, owner and designer of all things, is God allowed to do things the way he wants to? Yes or no? <laughs> yeah, right? It should be an obvious, it's not a trick question. The answer is yes, right? In other words, is God supreme or is there someone or something else controlling him, thereby making him not God at all, right? Yeah. You're allowed to do things the way you want if you've got a bunch of stuff to do it with. But you don't. It's God's stuff, right? He is creator and sustainer, owner and operator of all things, and that includes me. And so as creator and sustainer, is God allowed to do whatever he wants? Absolutely. Let's look at another question. As perfectly holy and perfectly good, is it possible that his plans are flawless whether I think so or not? In other words, 
Does something have to make sense to me in order for it to be right and good? Not even close. And anybody who's had children knows the answer to that question, right? One of the most frustrating moments in my life is when my kids rant and scream over stuff that's actually really good for them and they would enjoy. Anybody else been in that room? Yeah. I am surrounded in my life by a bunch of people who think they have autonomy and think they know how the world works and they have no clue. Does something have to make sense, perfect sense to me for it to be right and good? Does it have to line up with my sensibilities in order for God to be perfectly just and perfectly good? Not even close. In fact, it's quite possible that in my sinfulness and in my finiteness, I don't have a clue. Right? Question number three is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful. Is God capable of accounting for all of the variables and fulfilling his plan even with someone or something trying to impede it? Yeah. Is God capable of pulling off? Is he big enough, strong enough, smart enough to do what he intends even if puny little me is warring against him? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Paul says that even from before the foundation of the world, in verse 4, that God's plan was to choose some who were sinful and guilty before him and instead make them holy and blameless. And as great as that reality is, it pales in comparison to what's coming in verse 5. Why did he choose? For what purpose? For what end does he choose? Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So uh, several months ago when we looked at, uh, when we were in the very beginning stages of our On the Same Page series, we looked at one of the facets, one of the angles of looking at the gospel. uh, And we said that the gospel is a family reality. That God takes those who are in the category of enemy and through no merit of their own adopts them as sons and daughters. The Greek word here in in verse 5 for sons is a generic Greek term that kind of just means heir. And so a lot of translators, if you've got a a different uh, translation of the Bible, will say sons and daughters in that moment. It's good and right. right? So we we looked at several months ago the idea that, that the gospel, one aspect, component, angle of looking at the gospel is that Even though you and I don't deserve to be in his family, even though we are in the category of enemy, as Romans 5 tells us, that he instead chooses to love, chooses to bless, and to lavish himself upon those who have no business knowing him. Not just to neutrality. We We don't go from the category of enemy to neutral. We go from the category of enemy to beloved son or daughter. We move from the category of separated and rightfully deserving his wrath to prince or princess of the high king. Paul says here that not only did God choose from before the foundation of the world that he would make holy and blameless some, but they, they didn't go to the category of neutral. He makes them his. He gives them himself he actually 
loves them with an eternal and effectual love that cleanses them, and he deals with every single thing that stands in the way that needs to be done away with so that they might be reconciled. That doesn't simply make salvation possible. He saves you. Oh, there's a big difference. God doesn't simply open the door for you to walk in. He says, come to me. And he goes and gets you. He grabs you and makes you his. Do I deserve that? I don't know about you, but I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that at all. There's there's nothing in me that deserves to be his. Not a lick. Is it because I finally said I'm sorry in the right way? Why does God do this? Look at verse 6. To the praise of whose glorious grace? His glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why does God do any of this? Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. At the end of the day, this story is not about me. I play a part in it, but I, I am not the star of this story. God is the star of this story. God is the one who gets the credit. God is the one who gets the glory. God is the one who will forever get the praise for this. At the end of the day, God is the one who gets the credit. Not me, not my ability to reason or to figure it all out. I don't get the credit for having the drive or the willpower to clean myself up and be acceptable to him. I didn't figure this out. He rescued me. I didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps. He said, I'm going to make that one mine. Not only does the Bible teach that I can't do any of the things necessary to come to salvation, but there are also quiet moments when I finally get honest with myself. Moments I don't like to talk about publicly. That I realize at a core level, if anything in this is left up to me, I'm in a lot of trouble. How about you? There are moments that I don't like to talk about where I come to a full understanding that if, if my relationship with Jesus is dependent upon me in any way, succeeding here, uh, walking in faithfulness there, I am in a load of trouble because I don't have what it takes. My heart is fickle. Know me for two seconds, you get that. I'm all over the place. If an ounce of this depends on me, I will fail for that ounce. Plain and simple. I may may have enough to make up that ounce for a day or a week. It's coming. I'm going to fail. Oh, but in his goodness, he has accounted for that very thing. He is too good to leave it up to me. I mean, think about that for a second. We talk about God being good and we talk about God uh, preparing and equipping and doing all things necessary. Listen, 
He is so good and so big and so lovely towards us that he even accounts for the fact that I can't account for any of it. I have nothing to bring to the table. But in his goodness, he has provided a way. Look at verse 7. In him, Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul just lays out the gospel here, right? We are separated from God, but through Jesus on the cross, he lives the life that we cannot live, dies the death in our place, and makes the payment. That's the gospel. And as we've kept saying over and over again, I don't deserve that gift. But God is rich in his grace. Because from before the foundation of the world, God's plan was to bring glory to himself by saving the unsavable. By welcoming into his family, not just, not just the vile, but the unwantable. And according to verse 10, his plan can't be thwarted. The gospel begins with the reality that you can't fix you. Oh, but in the goodness of our God, it ends with God showing his grace and the riches of his love and his mercy to the universe by saving those who can't fix themselves. The gospel begins with, I am separated. And the gospel ends with God himself bridging that gap. I didn't do anything. He did it. That's incredibly good news. Right? And he says, listen, this plan is from before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 10 again. It says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. According to Paul in Ephesians 1.10, listen, this plan can't be undone no matter how much of a screw-up I am. And if you know me for any length of time, I'm a pretty big one. But it doesn't matter how big of one I am. It's not in my hands. It's in his hands. Right? So why did Paul write all this? I mean, isn't there still this little thing in the back of our neck where the hair creeps up and says, well, what about my will? Can I just be the, the authoritative but loving pastor for a second? Can I say something that might sting a little bit, but I, oh, I promise you it's intended with love? One of the reasons we kick back against this kind of stuff 
Maybe because of the culture that we live in. I mean that honestly. We celebrated last week, the 4th of July. I said from the stage during our, our welcome time that we have been blessed with, with liberty and with affluence and with opportunity that most of the world can never imagine, right? It's good and right on days like that to, to stop and celebrate the good giver of those gifts. It would be, it would be unwise and unchristlike to, to let a day like that pass by and act like we deserve those somehow. No, he's the good giver, and we have things that, quite honestly, most people in this world could never imagine walking in and experiencing. The system works actively against them. But every parent in this room understands that sometimes an abundance of gifts can make you soft. Just the truth. The days when my kids are the, the most gripey or asking for things, it's probably time to take a trip to Goodwill. Right? It's, every one of us sees it in kids and in, in others. The part of the problem is though we don't always see it in ourselves. Every single culture across all of history, every single one of them, has things in that culture which are barriers to understanding the gospel deeply. All right? So if you go to other cultures, it makes sense really quick. You start seeing with, with the lens of, okay, what, is this, what are the natural bridges to the gospel here? What are things that stand in the way? How do I need to, to address the gospel in such a way that it tears down those barriers? Do you think that we're immune to that? Or is our culture have the potential of having things that stand in the way of the gospel. Things that have to be sacrificed in order for us to see with the worldview that Jesus calls us to see. Our country was birthed in a moment of casting off a sovereign king. We've got a don't tread on me spirit just woven into our DNA, right? I think it's, I think it's possible that maybe we struggle sometimes unnecessarily with the idea that God is in charge and I am not. The idea that God does things according to the counsel of his own will and my vote doesn't count. Is that possible? Could there be things in our culture just like that that have to be sacrificed in order for us to see with gospel clarity? There are other cultures in this world outside of our own that don't struggle with this text. We've got people all over the place, myself included sometimes, that go, yeah, but this, yeah, but that. Listen, there are a lot of people who don't struggle with this text. And one of those cultures are those who submit to King Jesus in first century Ephesus. Why does Paul write this letter? Why does he include these massive truths in Ephesians? What's he doing here? Not to start a theological debate. It's not because Paul has a really strong opinion about things and he wants to make sure his side gets some airtime. Why does Paul unpack these massive truths? It's because they're a settled issue for Paul. And he's using them as a tool to teach the Ephesian church something, right? 
Paul doesn't include this in there to start a fight and to, to get us a healthy debate over how much will do we have versus how much control does God exercise. They're there for a purpose. So what's the purpose? Who's Paul talking to? And what is the culture that they're speaking the gospel into? The church that he's writing to is Ephesus, right? And so they are surrounded and mired in a culture that not only worships heavily Artemis, but has commercialized that in such a way that they are dripping in the worship of a false god. So Paul says, you can keep Artemis, I don't want her. Artemis was capricious and you'd bring an offering here to get her to bless this or to curse that. No, no, no. God's plan can't be bought or manipulated as from before the foundation of the world. You can keep Artemis. Paul, a man who stood, preached the gospel in the shadow of the very temple that was the cash cow of the ancient city of Ephesus, could look everybody in the eye and with integrity go, nah, you can keep her. I'll take the real thing. You can have your puny little Artemis. I'll take Yahweh. Can't be bought. Are you kidding me? This plan is from before the foundation of the world. I don't want her. If I can put Artemis under my thumb, no thanks. But the real God, he's big, he's in control, and his plan cannot be messed up or thwarted by me or by anyone else, he says. Paul here unpacks these massive truths about the bigness and the goodness of our God, not to start a debate, but to remind the Ephesian church who it is they're following. Who cares if Artemis and her followers rage against them? They'll be all right. That's what he's saying. Who cares if they fight against a culture that's always antagonistic against them? They'll be okay because God has all things in his hand. Paul opens up his letter to the church at Ephesus reminding those who are following Jesus what kind of king it is they're following. He does not carry around half power. He carries around all power. He is not capricious. He is eternally good. The God of the Ephesian church makes Artemis look like small town fair. So Paul says, isn't our God good? Can't he be trusted? His plan is from before the foundation of the world. God's sovereignty, God's control is incredibly good news. Because he is in control, we have absolutely nothing to fear. Because he is in control, we are not left to our own devices. Because he is in control, our faithful following of him will never be in vain. And because he is in control, we know exactly how the story will end. You can't trust the promises of a capricious God. Those of you who have been in church for a long, long time, you can probably start rattling off the promises of God that you love and cherish. Oh, hear me. If God's plan is not from before the foundation of the world, he can't deliver on a single one of those promises. It's because he is resolute. And it's because he will do what he has said he will do that every one of those promises will come to fruition. Bank on it.
lean into him. He's good. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to press into God who is over all and in all and through all, right? A God who goes before us and has all things in his hand. We press into a God who is eternal and eternally working out all things. We trust in both his bigness and his goodness. Well, I still don't understand this and I still don't understand that. Okay, yeah, okay. But is he big? And is he good? The rest of it, we'll figure out later. Is he big? And is he good? Oh, follower of Jesus, press into this big and good God this morning. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be your opportunity to do exactly that. We're going to sing a song about how he is faithful. Trust that promise. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. These are some heady things we're talking about. The call goes out to you this morning to, for the very first time, trust in this good, sovereign, eternal King who has made a way where there was no way, who has seen fit to save those who have no business being saved. He calls you to repent. He calls you to come to him. And in his bigness and in his goodness, he provides the means for you to do so. Call on Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to us. Your words are weighty. Sometimes we wrestle with them. But you are bigger than our understanding. And that is good news for us. Because if I can figure you out and I can put you in a box, you are not God at all. So thank you for being bigger, bigger and weightier and more eternal than what we can wrap our heads around. God, I pray that my words don't come off as arrogant. Just seeking to cast a big vision for who you are and how good you are. God, for those who don't know you here this morning, would you draw them to yourself? Would you make yourself known? I'm convinced that when we see you as you are, oh, we love you because you are lovely. Give us the courage to act on what we need to act on this morning. In your name, amen.